Hebrews, book of Hebrews chapter 10. We want to continue on with our look in Hebrews chapter 10. Remember last time as we approached this chapter, we saw that the sacrificial system under the law could not bring about the forgiveness of man. Although the author of Hebrews does indeed keep pointing to the inadequacies and the inefficiencies of the Old Covenant. Remember, he's not trying to persuade these Jewish Christians and professing Christians to despise the Old Covenant. He's not trying to say that the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Law has no value at all. What he wants them to see, rather, is that the law had its place. It had its purpose in God's redemptive plan for them. He wants them to see that ultimately everything that the law was foreshadowing, everything that the law was was doing, everything that was intended to do was to point to and, and, and to point to was fulfilled in Christ. That's what he wants them to see. He wants them to see this is what you had under the law. This is what the intentions were under the law. God never designed the law to be a permanent thing. As a matter of fact, remember when we looked at uh, the previous chapters in Hebrews, God had already said, right? And had already given a new covenant. Why would he give it a new covenant if the old covenant was intended to last forever? And so, uh, to demonstrate this, the author begins to lay the groundwork for what was accomplished for us in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And one of the most important things that was accomplished for you and for me was the complete and total forgiveness of your sin. As a matter of fact, as we get to the end of the, uh, this little section here in chapter 10, he's going to remind us again that God remembers your sin no more. Beloved, I can't tell you how big that is. And we're going to look at that one more time here again today as we're wrapping up this theological section in Hebrews. Remember, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 18, is all theology. It's all doctrine about why Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the priests. He's a better mediator. He brings in a better covenant. You can't miss that in 10 chapters of that. And then once we get past verse 18, beginning in verse 19, you're going to see what that means. What do we do with 10 chapters of doctrine? Well, we do what the Bible always tells us to do, and that's to live it. It's one thing to know it. The second thing, the most important thing for us, is not just to have head knowledge, but to have heart knowledge, and then put that heart knowledge into our hands and our feet. We need to live out our faith, and that's what he's going to talk about from chapter 10, verse 19, to the end of this great epistle. So let's review, since it's been a couple weeks, just quickly here, what we covered last time. If you have your notes, this will be at the top section here. Last time we looked at uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And the first thing we saw in verses 1 and 2, the point number 1, is that the old covenant sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. Right? The old covenant sacrifices could never make perfect those who draw near. Let's just look at 
our text itself in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. For the law, since it has only, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So the first thing that the author of Hebrews says, we see in verse 1, is the law. What does the author mean by the law? Well, he's talking about the ceremonial law, the priests, the entire priesthood, the ceremonies, the rituals, the sacrifices. That was all part of the ceremonial law. He's not talking about the entirety of the law, as certainly the moral law of God is still in effect, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's still in effect, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's still in effect, right? Honor thy father and mother. Still in effect. So the moral law uh, continued on, but the ceremonial law is going away. So the focus here is on the ceremonial law. The law, he says, is just a mere shadow. There was no form, no content to it. Matter of fact, he uses two different Greek words, right? One to kind of point as a shadow, one to, to talk about the reality of it. So he says there was no form, no content, no reality to it, but just simply a shadow pointing to what? To the good things to come. What were the good things to come, or what are the good things to come? Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, his atoning work on the cross. That's what he's talking about. So you see, the old covenant sacrifices were completely and totally ineffective, uh, completely and totally incapable of providing complete forgiveness for your sins. And without forgiveness of your sins, those sacrifices were completely and totally insufficient for salvation and insufficient to provide you access to God. And beloved, if you don't have access to God and your sins aren't forgiven, or you don't have access to God because your sins aren't forgiven, you do not have salvation. So, notice the text tells us that in the next part of verse 1, they, the old covenant sacrifices, can never make perfect. He's trying to really emphasize here, there's no chance, no way, no how. That word make perfect means to bring to completion or to fully accomplish what God had intended. What exactly is that that those who draw near need to have in order to be brought to completion or to fully accomplish God's redemptive plan? They need to have complete forgiveness of their sins. They need to have their sins remembered no more. They need complete access to God. And they need a salvation that is not just temporary, where their sins are just covered. They need their sins completely forgotten, is removed as far as the east as the west, so that they can have eternal salvation. The text tells us that those old covenant sacrifices can never make us perfect. They can never bring us to completion. They could never accomplish what God wanted for us to have. They could never bring about complete access to God. They could never, ever uh, bring about complete forgiveness of your sins. They could never bring about eternal salvation. In other words, if he, he repeats that then in verse 2. Otherwise, he said, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciences of sins. He basically 
So the point of verse 1 is then proven in verse 2. If they were accomplishing what God had intended, why did they have to keep being repeated again and again and again and again? If they were so effective at cleansing and of, of bringing about complete forgiveness, then why do we have to keep doing them year after year after year after year? Brings us to verse 3 and point number 2. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So point number two, those old covenant sacrifices were a constant reminder of man's sinfulness. That was part of their purpose, was reminding every time that they had to bring a sacrifice that they, their sins needed to be accounted for. Their sins needed to be atoned for. In order for them to have uh, forgiveness from God, even temporary forgiveness of God, not eternal forgiveness of God, in order to have those sins forgiven, even temporarily, they needed to be atoned for. So a constant reminder that man was still in his sins. And guess what? You'd walk away from the Day of Atonement and go, praise God, my sin for last year was atoned for. And then you'd take two steps and maybe some, say something mean to your spouse, and you'd think, well, next year on the Day of Atonement, I'm going to have to ask for that one to be forgiven as well, right? I mean, he just it was always on their mind that, and they still had this consciousness of the guilt that they were carrying, and they'd have to carry that all year long until the next year, year after year after year. If you were 40 years old, you've probably done that 30 times. 30, 35 times you've been doing that same thing. Every year, going back in. Every year, carrying that guilt for another year. So the author of Hebrews was telling us that the Old Testament worshipers would have been reminded of their sin. And in the very act of having to go there year after year after year on the annual Day of Atonement ritual. My friends, God never designed the Old Covenant ceremonial sacrificial system as a means for atoning for your sin. That system was never designed for you to be able to have complete forgiveness of your sins. What it did was pointed you towards the fact that there was one coming who would forgive your sins. It pointed out just how much we need a Savior. It pointed out just how incapable we are of living a life so righteous that we can make ourselves holy and come into the presence of God. It was a constant reminder of our own depravity, our own sinfulness. I was very good at that. Romans chapter 3, remember we looked at last time, tells us the other thing it is it held back the wrath of God. Romans 3.25 tells us that God, in his, uh, in his mercy, passed over our sins previously committed. He, he, he omitted them is actually the word. And uh, that points us back to the blood, remember, that was put over the lentil when the angel of death passed over uh, Egypt and God struck all the firstborn that were not covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Remember that? And although Israel's uh, those Israelites would eventually die. They didn't die that night because God delayed his justice because of the sacrifice that was offered for them in the blood of the Lamb. All of that was foreshadowing Christ. It was pointing to the one, the perfect Lamb of God, who would shed his blood. The same was true when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. God's wrath was withheld for another year. Finally, in verse 4, you recall, 
he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Point number three, the blood of animals can never bring about forgiveness of our sins. It was never designed to do that. That word impossible is an absolute term. What do I mean by that? It means just that. No way, no how, absolutely no chance of the possibility of that ever happening. Absolutely not. So in the same, it's, it's used in the same sense that we looked at when we looked at chapter 6 in the warning passage. No one, not one person, my friends, was ever saved through the offering of a sacrifice in the Old Covenant. Not one. They were saved by their faith in what God had promised. That's what they were saved by. They were saved by God's grace through faith, not by the offering of the shed blood of the animal. You cannot atone for your sins, no matter how many ceremonies you tend, how many rituals you participate in, how many candles you light, how many things you give up for Lent. It is impossible. There is no amount of religious activity that can take away your sins. No amount of baptismal waters, no amount of communion, no amount of church memberships, no amount of giving, no amount of serving, no amount of aisle walking, hand raising will ever save your soul. It is impossible. It is only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? So then we have... This inadequacy of the old covenant sacrifices under the ceremonial law that could never bring about true forgiveness of sin. They could not take away your sin. They could not bring about perfection or the completion of God's will. What then, what sacrifice would accomplish God's will? Well, we see the answer to that in verses 5 and 6 in our text. Let's read that together, shall we? Therefore... When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. So then, point number one, the cross was the will of God the Father. The cross was the will of God the Father. Notice that word, therefore. Again, every time we see that word, therefore, we ask ourselves what is the therefore, therefore. It's pointing us back to the four verses that we just went through as a reminder. He's basically saying, therefore, all the re- because of all the reasons I just shared with you in verses 1 through 4 about the insufficiency and the inadequacy of those old covenant sacrifices, therefore, when he comes into the world... The Father's will will be accomplished. Well, who's the he in this verse? He's actually referring to Jesus. When Jesus comes into the world. When did Jesus come into the world? At the incarnation. Now, what's so fascinating about uh, these verses is that they are a direct quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Now, Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. It's a psalm written by David through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's much, much more than that. And like all prophetic statements or all prophecy, it has some immediate fulfillment in the life of David, but its ultimate fulfillment is fulfilled in Christ. 
Well, we actually see here in these verses, which are quoted from the Septuagint. Matter of fact, if you go back and you were to scroll back and look at Psalm 40 in your Bible, that's based on the Hebrew text. And you're going to see a slight difference in verses 6 through 8 than we do here in our text in the book of Hebrews. And that's because in the Psalms, they're taken from the Hebrew text. And in the book of Hebrews, they're taken from the Septuagint. If you remember what the Septuagint is, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. It doesn't change the text. The idea is the same, but the words are a little differently here. But what you actually see here in these texts, and I want you to note this, what you actually see here, what you get to do is you get to eavesdrop, if you will, in a private conversation between God the Father and God the Son. That's what's actually going on here. So these verses were spoken by God the Son, Jesus, to God the Father before he left heaven to come into this world in the incarnation. What did he say? Verse 5. Father, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Notice how God could not have any pleasure or, or, or not desire something. How is that possible? How could God say that he, he was not pleased or had no pleasure or didn't desire something that he himself instituted? Remember, the sacrifices are on the authority and the creation of God given to Moses, right, through the angels as a mediator, the law. How is it that God the Son can say to God the Father, you don't want sacrifices. They're not pleasurable to you. There's no desire in it. How could that be when God himself is the one who instituted these sacrifices? I mean, God is the one who instituted the law in the first place. How could he not be pleased that they were following through with these ceremonies and sacrifices that he, that he commanded? It sure seems like God did indeed desire these sacrifices. So in what sense did God not desire them or take pleasure of them? Remember verse 4. In the sense that they could never take away sin. There's no pleasure for God in that fact that these were just a pointing towards the one who would come to take away sin. They could never make men perfect. They could never make men complete. They could never make men holy. And because of their ineffectiveness, they could never accomplish the Father's will of having all of his children with him in his presence forever. They could never do that. The only way that could happen is if you and I are made holy. If you and I are declared not guilty. If we're justified. That's the only way that could ever happen. And the old covenant sacrifices could not do that. They only served as a constant reminder of just how much, just how sinful we actually are and how much guilt we still would have. Secondly, none of the sacrifices that were given were done by the animals voluntarily. I can guarantee you that. Those animal sacrifices were never intended to take away sin. God had no desire for them to continue indefinitely. 
But what this Trinitarian conversation, what this conversation that's going on within the Trinity reveals to us is that God knew that the only sacrifice that could ever accomplish his will would be the voluntary sacrifice of his son who shed his blood upon that cross. That would bring about perfection. That would bring about the completion of God's holy word and God's perfect will. Only that which means that this was part of God's redemptive plan before Jesus ever came to this earth in the incarnation. Which is why God prepared a body for him. See that the second part of verse 5. What's that talking about? That's talking about the virgin birth. Jesus did not have an earthly father. He had a heavenly father. If Jesus had been born through Joseph, he would have been born like you and me with a sin nature. He would have inherited Adam's sin nature just like every one of us. And that would have made Jesus a sinner. And beloved, no sinner can ever be anybody's savior. Secondly, Jesus needed to have a human body prepared for him because as man's representative, he needed to die. God cannot die, but as a man, he can and did. So it is with this body prepared for him that Jesus would die on the cross and it would be through his shed blood that he would make the only acceptable atonement for our sins. The only sacrifice that could ever atone for our sins was the perfect lamb of God. And don't miss this. God the Son is talking with God the Father and he says... It's not the animal sacrifices that are pleasing to you, is it, Father? Because they will never accomplish your will. And all of your children, all those you've given to me, can never have access to you eternally. They can never have their sins atoned for through these animal sacrifices, can they? And Jesus says, I'll go. I obey. I'll do it, Father. My love for you. So it's with this body prepared for him that Jesus would die on the cross, and it would be through his shed blood that he would make the only acceptable atonement for our sins. All of this, this body that was prepared for him, the means of the sacrifice, the cross, all of it was the will of the Father. All of it. Now look at verses 7 through 9 here in our text. Then I said, who's, who's saying that? Jesus. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Behold, I have come. Then I said, again, this is Jesus speaking 2,000 years ago. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. What was God's will? Turn to Mark Chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man 
did not come to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. Turn to chap turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter nineteen. What is the Father's will? Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost. Turn to First Timothy chapter one. Verse fifteen. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. Paul says, among them, among whom I am the foremost of all. Jesus came in this world to save sinners, lost sinners, from their sin. Verse 7, then he says, in the scroll of the book, this is written of me. The me should be capitalized. Jesus is saying this. What does that refer to? He's speaking about all of the Old Testament prophecies that foretold of the coming one who would come to do the will of the Father and save his people from their sins. Now, they didn't get that because they didn't want to get that, but it was all throughout the scriptures. Because what they wanted was not someone who would save them from their sins, but someone who would save them from the oppressors, the Romans. They wanted a military conqueror. They didn't want someone to save them from their sins. They didn't think that they needed to be saved from their sins. Verse 8. After saying above scriptures and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to law. He, he repeats now, this incidentally is about the third or fourth time in our text that the author has reminded us that God takes no pleasure and has no desire for these old covenant sacrifices to continue, as we've been discussing all along. God has no desire to see this endless repetition of ineffective and inadequate ceremonies or empty religious rituals that could never take away sin. Which is why Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Remember what Jesus said at the, to the woman in the well in John chapter 4? Remember, he said, I have a food that you don't know about. It's to do the will of my Father. Remember when Jesus said that? Jesus came to accomplish the will of the Father in the only way possible. He needed to be born of a virgin. He needed to put on flesh. He needed to be a man. He needed to shed his blood, paying the wages for our sin through his shed blood on that cross. No animal sacrifice could ever accomplish that. <coughs> no amount of ceremonies or rituals could accomplish this. No one was ever saved from an animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. It would take a new covenant with a better priesthood, a better priest, and a better sacrifice to accomplish that which is exactly what verse 9 tells us. Look at verse 9. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. 
He takes away the first in order to establish the second. God takes away the ceremonial law with all of its animal sacrifices in the old covenant and replaces it with the new covenant, which is established and accomplished through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I want you to notice two things here. The ceremonial sacrifices and rituals and offerings in the old covenant and the shed blood of Jesus Christ are mutually exclusive. What does that mean? It means they don't go together. You can't have them combined in the same service, if you will. They cannot exist together at the same time. You can't be saved by works and by grace through faith at the same time. You can't say that you're saved by the animal sacrifices and also the sacrifice of Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross. They're mutually exclusive. They don't go ever together. Which means men are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. There is no other way by which men can be saved than through faith in the atoning work of the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the wages for your sin. This couldn't be any clearer, my friend. And this was determined long ago, before the incarnation, in eternity past, that God would send his son to die on the cross for our sins, and he would voluntarily agree to be that sacrifice. And his obedience to the Father's plan for the salvation of all men accomplished the Father's will and simultaneously removed the ceremonial law forever. One commentator wrote this, the cross wasn't an accident or an unforeseen tragedy that somehow took Jesus by surprise. It was not a temporary setback that God figured out how to turn for good. Rather, the cross was all part of God's predetermined plan before the beginning of time to deal with our sin. That the Son of God would come into this world as a man, he would fulfill through his obedience the complete law of God, and he would die as the sacrifice so that the justice of God demands, or as the justice of God demands, payment for our sins, end quote. When Jesus came into this world and died upon that cross, he obediently fulfilled the Father's plan to save the lost. But he did something else here, and I don't want you to miss this. He provided for us an excellent example of obedience to the Father's will. Don't miss that in the midst of all of this. And we see the importance of this all through Scripture. Keep your place in Hebrews, if you will, but turn back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. This is a psalm of David. Right after the Nathan, right after the prophet Nathan came to David and said, "What? You the man? You the man?" So David is in a broken, contrite way. He is humbled. Verses sixteen and seventeen: For you do not delight in sacrifice; otherwise, I would give it. 
you're not pleased with burnt offering, the sacrifice of God, or sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Perhaps the best Old Testament example is found in 1 Samuel 15. Remember in 1 Samuel 15 when Samuel confronts Saul for his disobedience? Do you remember that? 1 Samuel 15. The Lord had instructed Samuel to tell Saul. He said, uh, I'm going to punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Verse 2, how he set himself against on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek. Utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. Put to death both man, woman, child, infant, oxen, sheep, camel, and everything. Do you remember how Samuel responded when he found out that Saul had spared Agag and spared the sheep. Do you remember that? What is that bleeding of sheep I hear? If you look in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Idolatry, I'm sorry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. You think the Lord values obedience? You think the Lord values obedience over the sacrifice? Yes. How about Jesus himself? Remember what he prayed in the garden? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. It is through Jesus' obedience to the Father's will, we see that no matter how difficult the circumstances may be, we must commit ourselves to obey his will, whatever the cost. And this is not something, beloved, that we do at the spur of the moment either or at the brink of temptation. You have to make a conscious decision in your life to obey the will of the Father every day, not just when you're faced with a certain temptation. God is displeased when people go through the outward motions of worship, but their hearts harbor sin that they're unwilling to forsake, or bitterness, or anger. Today, you can go to church and partake of communion, as we're going to do shortly, But if you're living in disobedience to God, or if you're covering some sin in your heart, God is not pleased with your worship. God is seeking a broken and a contrite spirit and worship that is done with a whole heart for him in obedience to all he has commanded you to do. Go back to Hebrews now. Let's look quickly here at our final point. Verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Point number three. Through the obedience of Jesus, we are sanctified once for all. Sanctified once for all. What were the results of Jesus' voluntary and obedient offering of himself to accomplish the Father's will? There are several results. We only have time to mention this one this morning. Verse 10 tells us we are sanctified once and for all. Look at that text again. By his will. Whose will? God the Father. Through his obedience, Jesus' obedience, to accomplish the Father's will, we have been sanctified. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, 
that in his voluntary sacrificial death on the cross, this body that God prepared for him is the same body that was offered up once for all. And through this, we are sanctified. What does that word sanctified mean? It means you are set apart, made holy. Set apart, made holy. To have removed from you all moral blemish, all condemnation, all guilt. In other words, to be made holy. How can we be invited into the presence of God and remain with him forever? We must be declared holy. You must be holy as God is holy. That was never going to happen through the shed blood of bulls and goats. It can only happen through the perfect sacrifice from a perfect man who was 100% God so that he could not sin, 100% man so he could be our mediator, our representative, and reconcile us to a perfect and holy God. And God planned that long ago with the Father, and the Son was obedient to the Father's plan to the point of death. Philippians 2 tells us even death on a cross. Since we are declared holy ones, does that mean we never sin? Of course not. First John 1 John 1.8, right? If you say you have no sin, right? You are a liar. It's pretty straightforward. What it does mean is that positionally we are set apart for God and he has delivered us from the guilt and the condemnation and punishment for our sin. And instead he has put us in Christ where we are declared holy as God is holy. Not because of our actions, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. My friends, without the finished work of Christ on the cross, you have no basis for your salvation, and you have no basis for your sanctification. It is only in and through Jesus' obedience to the Father's plan for our salvation that the Father's will was accomplished. And it's only because he willfully offered his body a body that was prepared for him for just this purpose, that you and I are both saved eternally and sanctified once and for all. Go back a page. I just wanted to to remind you of something real quick. As we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, turn back a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. I just wanted to remind you of this very quickly here. We're just going to look at these quickly. We'll pick them up next time. Verse 18, chapter 7. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. It could not bring to completion, right? And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, remember there was an oath with this covenant, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So the author of Hebrews says there's a better covenant. Look at verse 23. The former priests on the one hand existed in great number because they were prevented by death from continuing on. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood how long? permanently. Verse 25, therefore, he's also able to say for how long? Forever. Those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verse 11. So we've seen a better covenant, and we've seen that Jesus once for all offered up himself. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, he entered into the tabernacle of God in the heavens. Verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but how? Through his own blood, he entered the holy place, how many times? Once for all. And what did he obtain when he did that? Eternal redemption. Then finally, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, what we just read. By this will we have been sanctified. We have been set apart. We have been made holy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, we have a better covenant that Jesus offered himself once and for all for our eternal redemption. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and finally, not only saved us eternally through his sacrifice, through his sacrifice he sanctified us once and for all. He sanctified us, set us apart for how long? Forever. Which is why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Once for all. Nothing to add. It is complete. You are made perfect. You are made holy. All of this was determined long ago in a conversation we had the privilege of listening to this morning between God the Son and God the Father. In which the Son, knowing the Father's plan to seek and save the lost, to save men from their sins, obediently executed the Father's plan to accomplish his will. What a marvelous truth that is for all those here today have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want you to remember the sacrifice that was made for you and that the Son, standing on the precipice of heaven 2,000 years ago, obediently said, I will go, Father. I will go so that they may have eternal life through me. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I'm going to ask the men to come forward if you